episode 129. Independent Magazines. In this episode, Neil talks to three editors and one guest editor of three independent print magazines, focusing largely or in part on film. In this slightly longer episode around those three conversations, Neil and Dario talk about collecting, the digital versus the physical, ideas around mortality and the object, and to kick things off, some in-depth thoughts on Annette by Leos Carax, which is now in cinemas, and The Archers, One of Our Aircraft is Missing, which is released on Blu-ray by the BFI very soon. All right, on with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and joining me, as always, I'm delighted to say, is Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. Hey, Neil. How are things? How's it going? Very well, thank you. Yeah, life is pretty good. I'm watching movies, I'm talking about movies, um, thinking about movies, teaching movies. So it feels like a pretty good period. Uh, I think before assessment anxiety kicks in at work, it feels like a glorious time of possibility. (laughs) So that's what I'm reveling in before it becomes... Yeah. The usual stress fest. What about you? Oh God, I I am stirred rest <laughs> right now. I really am. Yeah, I mean, look, nobody wants to hear about our first world problems too much, but yeah, it's the first first proper teaching week next week, and I've got eight hours on Monday morning, and and it's not the you know it's not the teaching really or the prep that's stressing me out, although that that's just ha- having to happen you know all week. Um, I haven't the last two or three weekends has just been full on. It's the it's the match fitness, you know what I mean? For want of a better word, it's like eight hours. I'll start at nine o'clock. By four, I'll be wiped out and I'll have another two hours. And, yeah, you know, it's it's funny. Just I'm, I'm writing a little bit about this on the newsletter without hopefully not going into just a major rant. But but <laughs> I don't know what other people's institutional, people who work in institutions, what they feel like. But every every year it feels like more and more that institutions just put more obstacles in your way before you get to the point of what you're supposed to be doing with students and and any any answer to any problem is always more more bureaucracy more paperwork more hoops to jump through um but i keep reminding myself as i as as i'll sort of outline in the newsletter that it's it's getting through that it's sort of negotiating that or hacking your way through to the point where you remember that oh yeah I remember being in the room and 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 you know talking about movies for a living is a massive privilege and just getting to that is is great and I just want to be able to fit it all in now you know we're, we're doing the LFF episodes coming up next and I got you know the other podcast and and book editing and all sorts going on and it's just kind of like I don't want it to be this you know huge weight but but I'm sure it'll be all right. By, by, by our next recording, I'll be, I'll be, oh, it was all fine. 
yep i've been doing it for two weeks in the room and uh yeah the the early stress and anxieties have, have kind of subsided they're still there but they have definitely yeah. sort of i've definitely eased into a, a kind of pattern of doing it and uh, yeah it's it it is nice to be back in the room you know those conversations are are, are good in the room so good luck Absolutely. with your baptism of fire thank you Monday. very much indeed so sure before be we get into the main show um i realized that i i knew you were going to see annette by leos carax oh yeah who yeah. directed holy motors uh, which i know is one of your favorite films um but we, I don't know what you thought of it, and we haven't really talked about it offline or anywhere, and I haven't seen anything online. So I just, I just thought, you know what? What did Dario make of the Sparks Brothers musical by <laughs> Leos Carax? Well, again, you know, as as you will probably bang your head against a brick wall, I've never heard of the Spark Brothers, didn't know who they were. Um, but I, I went into this, you know, just really wanting to love it, really excited. Uh, I was, I went to the ICA to a Leox Carax Q&A afterwards as well. So it was like, he didn't intro it, you know, reticent. And he played that kind of, you know, French auteur aesthetite or whatever. <laughs> I don't even know how you pronounce that word. Um, to the T, you know what I mean? He was kind of like uh, very, he, he was fashionably shabby, let's say in, in attire, you know, but with the glasses on and, and you know, um, acerbic in his commentary and, and, very sort of you want to say thoughtful but it was kind of like trying to drag out of himself some something to say anyway but the film itself um is is just it's quite remarkable in in many ways it it on the one hand because it's a musical it is fundamentally just wedded to all of the tropes and all of the the mechanics of the way musicals worked work in that it's broad brushstrokes. You get people singing the same lines over and over again. I love you. I love you. I love you so much. I love you so much. And the the songs are so repetitive, but but they're obviously deliberately like that. And it's an earworm type of effect that that it has. And all of this is kind of married to the, just the, the that incredible look that his films have, which is um, it's kind of you know they're, they're sort of highly stylized in a sort of neo-gothic way and and but but it's very postmodern at the same time you know what i mean there's there's sort of influences from all from all over the place um and yeah in in, ter- in terms of an experience it's just it, it is kind of overwhelming and kind of incredible but and and there are elements of it that i mean adam driver is just fantastic and also is a really problematic character, you know what I mean? I can see people sort of looking at this movie and saying, you know, this is just, again, another old French man who who needs reconstructing, you know? Um, but the, there's some great... He, he plays a stand-up comedian, and there's a great sort of scenes of him deconstructing stand-up comedy um, in this act that he does that isn't funny. And, and is, I actually asked, I got to ask a question afterwards, and I sort of asked him about building these um, these stand-up comedy themes. And he says, oh, that, well, he said, when I realized that they didn't need to be funny and they didn't need to be structured, I kind of relaxed a little bit more <laughs> because I thought, you know, and and it was funny because in the, in the credits, Adam Driver, um, uh, he references, he, he gives special thanks to Bill Burr and Chris Rock. So he'd obviously gone and spoken to these guys and sort of got a sense of what a stand, how, how a stand-up comedian moves and, and sort of articulates themselves. But then, you know, there's this relationship with Marion Cotillard, who's this op- famous opera singer, and her star continues to rise 
and his kind of diminishes. But then they have this child who turns, I mean, you know, spoiler alert, but this child is a puppet. So it has this whole mechanics that's a bit like being John Malkovich in terms of there's this animatronic sort of thing going on. Well, you know, it's not animatronic, but, you know, it moves in yeah. that sort of way. Um, and I have to say that it, it, it's a story of fame and stardom and this kind of thing. And, and what the, the child almost is, is sort of a reincarnation of Marion Cotillard in a way and, and becomes a star in its own right. But again, you, you get these scenes with with Adam Driver playing off of a puppet, and he said in the in a, in the the Q and A afterwards that he wanted a, he wanted a, a a small baby who could kind of emote and had a personality and could move in the way that he wanted. Because you know, children in movies they can't do anything; they just sit there, you know what I mean, or cry or whatever. But they they're not going to exude anything. So he gave this baby a personality, you know, as a puppet, and. I have to say, in the middle, I was kind of like, come on, let's move forward, let's move forward. And there isn't, like I say, for me, it was very broad brushstroke. So if you take it like that and you just take it in terms of the experience, it's kind of overwhelming. And at the very end, there is an amazing payoff scene. Again, spoiler alert, go see it before I say this. But the, the puppet turns into a real, his real child. And, and they have this duet at the very end. And the payoff of that, it, because you've, you've been watching it for an hour and 45 of this puppet, and then it's a real child, and it's just really kind of emotionally powerful, I, I thought. And it was like getting through, all, almost getting through all of those songs that are repetitive all, over and over again to this point of, you know, real sort of payoff was, was, was quite fantastic. It's not Holy Motors. But it's, what is? Yeah, it, it, yeah. What is yeah. really? But anyway, sorry, that, I went on a little bit there. But I think I think you'll like it actually. I think you'll yeah, like no, it's it. lovely to hear actually because I, I obviously I was I was excited to see it for the the Carracks and the sparksness of it and the Adam Driverness and it just seemed yeah. like a kind of yeah one of those factory manufactured for Neil to like films. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but then obviously because it's been out a little while, I hadn't I hadn't read much of it since Can and and then I, it came up on. Uh, the last thing I saw podcast with Beatrice the Louisa yeah, and Adam yeah, Naiman talking that. about it really interesting critique yeah. of it and the most kind of in-depth one I'd heard and it's, it's kind of it chimes very much with what you're saying there in terms of the uh yeah the the complexities of it and the problematicness mm. but also this kind of operatic almost Sondheim-esque kind of approach to this to the music and stuff yeah I really I really can't wait to see it um and I I, I knew those spoilers anyway so no yeah, spoilers for yeah. me, but yeah, just really nice to hear you talk about it um, yeah. and sort of hear you wrestle with it as as a film, which is obviously kind of like his work, kind of operating on many levels. Even though sure. a lot of critics have been like, "Oh, this is just whatever," um, yeah, like just problematic white guy stuff. So, yeah. yeah, really cool. Thank you for that. No worries. And you, what have you been? Uh, what have you been up to? I know there's a film you wanted to talk about. Yeah, so I wanted to flag up that the BFI are releasing a really beautiful Blu-ray of one of our aircraft is missing, the Powell and Pressburger. <laughs> yes. Um, which is, yeah, I had not seen it, and I watched it last night. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, from 1942, it's the first Archers film, so it's the first one that kind of is is them together as the Archers sort of presented. Yeah, and right. it's this really generous portrait of Dutch resistance, really. So it's, it's about these airmen who uh, sort of eject out of their plane as it kind of has, has difficulties over Holland, and it's about these kind of yeah sort of farmers and, and village people working to smuggle them back to England and yeah it's just really wonderful really funny there's a really interesting sort of energy in the film and I was reading this morning because I've got the 
the Powell, the Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger books. So I was sort of going into those and just having a look like their autobiographies and really interesting to hear, particularly in um, Michael Powell's where he's talking about all these these great actors, these great stage actors in the forties um, who weren't at war, weren't getting work. You know, he sort of, you know he calls them up and it's a really kind of star-studded theatrical cast all competing to be top dog in this ensemble you know so it gives this really crackling energy right. to the to the story and there's a great P- peter houston office in it and it's in his first role oh wow and um apparently in his autobiography he said about the fact that he just decided to do nothing because he sort of turned up for his couple of days and everyone's just warring with who's going to get the most screen time and who's gonna, like in this film essentially like propaganda film for the sure. war effort they're all trying to outdo each other which just sounds amazing um but yeah it's a really really great film and just one of those films you just it's got googie withers in it who's one of my favorite sort of classic british actors it's the second film of michael powell's that was edited by david lean shot by ronald neem wow. it's just this you know um yeah really really wonderful film and really interesting the way they thought about sound the, the only music is um music that you hear played yeah you know yeah. so kind of early kind of diegetic only um approach and um yeah things like they they go on a bombing raid to stuttgart and they chose stuttgart because emmerich pressburger was a student there and hated it so um, <laughs> let's bomb the shit out of it and because it was the first <laughs> yeah because it was the first place he experienced anti-semitism right. so he was like he's going to get his own back in film form um but the it was it was you know 1942 after an incident in 1941 which it's kind of based on and yeah just made with the complete cooperation of the the ministry of defense so the 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 aerial footage and the way the aerial footage mixes with the model work that they did it's just extraordinary you know you just you're completely in that plane you're completely looking out of that Mm. plane yeah i remember those scenes they're big they're sort of coming under fire just you know it's it's an early one for them it's sort of before their big run of you know all-time classic masterpieces, it, but it's absolutely. Wasn't it George Lucas who used those aerial scenes in Star Wars to, to for a press for a for a production screening because he didn't have the he didn't have the special effects yet? I think that's true. Yeah, possibly. That's <laughs> yeah, no, that's and that would make sense. You know, they the the amount of detail in the model work, and you know, they sort of constructed this huge set set in um, Riverside Studios in Hammersmith, and then put this kind of train track. So they carried this train camera on a train track which was sort of 10 feet above this model um it looks Mm. incredible you know and it's you know for us old people who think that movies were better in the olden days when they didn't have cgi um you just you just you're completely convinced yeah Yeah, yeah, you know like it's just it's so magical and beautiful um and powerful so yeah that's out um absolutely really um yeah, really love that movie. Um, thought it was great, and it looks beautiful in the new release. And it's nice to see Michael Powell's got a little cameo as a as the person who sends the the planes mm. off, which is really great. cool. So yeah, well worth well worth checking. Awesome. So let's get on to the uh, the main body of the episode, and this is an episode that you've put together um, over quite a bit of time, hasn't it, been Neil? I mean, you did some of the tapings earlier on this year. Um, and it's on um, independent print magazines. Yes. So the niche of all Indeed. niches uh, <laughs> is being. Who's going to do it apart from us? You know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, that you know that that's that's kind of part yeah. of it. Really, was yeah. you know, I I've always loved magazines. I st- I read fewer now because you know I'm trying to be sensible, um, but I still love magazines, and and I think in in recent years. 
there's been a a really great increase in yeah sort of independent magazines and that space between zines and magazines you know sort of independent publications that have come out and yeah just kind of spending a lot of time reading them I just thought I and and, and also knowing that starting an independent magazine now seems kind of crazy yeah. really um in many ways but obviously I love the fact that there are so many people doing it um and I just thought it'd be nice to speak to some people who were doing it um and get a sense of yeah what what was sort of driving them to to put these amazingly beautiful artifacts into the world at such a difficult time um and that all felt yeah like they were you know p- made by people who love magazines you know f- for people who love magazines so the design and the writing just really interested me so yeah I just thought it would be nice to chat and I think they were probably all a little bit surprised when I said do you want to talk about publishing an independent magazine on a film podcast in the sense that you know just like us really I think everyone you know a lot of people are just working in their own field and you know knowing they're connecting but but unaware of how I'm sure of how they're connecting on a wider on a wider scale so yeah this was this was something that I yeah just sort of again was a curiosity driven episode really of what what's what's it like to to do this at the moment yeah i mean listening to the interviews that are, that are coming up i definitely had the sense of affinity in terms of these guys doing this essentially as a labor of love and having to not only in time and and sort of uh, motivation and you know passion is all built around what they're doing on the outside you know whether it's other jobs in academia or whatever it might be so there's a real sort of uh, connection there in terms of how we do this podcast but also you know that sense of wanting to um, promote writing promote voices and and, and just subjects that aren't going to be covered and do it in a way that is kind of much more immediate and you know you don't have to go through all of these um, all of these modes and structures of, of of publication, and you know, you know that sort of sense of this is something that's happening, even if you're talking about a, a subject that's you know, or a film or whatever that that's from, you know, that's incredibly niche or from way back, it has a sense of immediacy within the context that you put it, which is really, which is really fascinating. So, who are the uh, who are the interviewees? So yeah, this is a yes. Yeah, so there's three interviews. One is with Maria. Uh, I'll introduce them more formally when I when you sort of hear them um, to sort of link the the segments. But Maria from Hellbore Magazine, which is a folk horror uh, magazine. Um, Gabriel from Beneficial Shock, which is a fully illustrated film magazine, which is thematic and published once a year, um, and which I have written a couple of pieces for. Um, so yes, yeah, another shameless plug. Um, and then I spoke to Catherine, who is the editor of Garageland magazine, and Lucy Bolton, who was the guest editor for a special British film history uh, edition of the magazine. Great, let's hear that now. Maria Perez Cuervo is the editor of Hellebore magazine, a folk horror periodical. Thank you for joining me today, Maria. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. What made you want to start a print, independent print magazine? Um, Yeah, lots of people ask me about this because it seems like a little bit of a crazy enterprise, doesn't it? But um, I've always been in love with printed media. And I feel that 
all of us spend such a long time in front of our phones browsing through content that it's almost like you don't have time to pause and enjoy it. So um, I just wanted to produce something really beautiful, beautiful to look at and to enjoy um, away from the screen. And um, that's why Hellebore is only available uh, as a printed as a printed magazine. Um, some people have asked me, oh, why don't you do PDF versions? And um, that's the answer is because it wouldn't have the same magic, the same mystique. Yeah, absolutely agree. I, I live in Cornwall and I often take it to places where there's no phone signal and there's something about reading it, particularly in the places that within the magazine itself are sort of the kind of spaces and places that are being written about and sort of yeah examined in the it's it's such a wonderful experience to to be in in the wild and in nature and reading uh, about those kind of places so i love that there's no pdf version i um, i love cornwall as well so um i featured cornwall a few times already in the five issues that we've been published that, that have been published yep i've got a list of places to uh, to track down over the oh, next... i'm glad to hear that that's our, <laughs> one of our main purposes so that's a really good thing um so you mentioned there about the kind of the love of magazines what is it about sort of printed magazines that you love what is it appeal that appeals to you about them i mean I, I want to i want to be clear i don't really hate online media or anything like that i do have a kindle myself and i read uh, on my kindle and i think it's very useful but i think there's a different dimension to it and i think there's a magic that you can't you can't get when you're reading on a screen. Um, I don't know if it's the physicality of it or or the way that the object is presented in front of your eyes, because um, obviously slightly different. You've got a double page and you can go back, um, which you can't do easily when you're reading online. Um, and I don't know. I've I've always I've come from um well I come from a family where everybody loves books and magazines, and I remember. Uh, people in my family buying lots of magazines when I was little and I still do buy quite a lot of magazines myself so yeah it's just um I don't know it's, it's, I guess it's a passion of mine. <laughs> um, were there any magazines that were particularly formative that you sort of remember always wanting to 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 get the next issue or sort of always picking up when you were out and about? Well, I'm a subscriber to 14 Times, which you might know because it's yeah. um, similar in themes, although it covers different well slightly different grounds such as ufos and you know other things that we don't really cover but um obviously i grew up in spain so um there was no 40 and times in spain <laughs> but when i moved to england um i remember going to wh smith's or something and and finding 40 and times and thinking oh my goodness this is really cool and um since then i mean i've um I pitched some articles and I actually am a regular contributor now or reasonably regular. So that, that was one of my favorites. Um, but then nothing, I mean, a little bit of everything really, because I remember buying National Geographic magazine and um, travel magazines in general, fashion magazines, literally anything, and also a lot of film magazines. So uh, yeah, I was always fascinated by those. The magazine um, Hellebore sort of has such an eclectic range of pieces and uh, sort of contributors, and it feels like everyone's just really excited to have the chance to, to like you say, be involved in something beautiful, but also to write about things that might not necessarily be featured in in other places. Could you talk a little bit about an issue and sort of the contributors and how you work with them and how you how you get people on board? Yeah. So the first one. Um 
was slightly different because um, the first issue is obviously, you know, a bit a bit of a of a gamble, I guess. Um, you you don't know how it's going to work out and if it's going to be well received and that sort of thing. So what I did for that one was um, I spoke to my friends within that field and said, hey, would you like to do this crazy thing that I came up with? And they very kindly said yes. So we put together that issue. And um, so I wasn't open for submissions in, in the first issue at all. But for the second one, I, I did open, I, I did a call for submissions and I received some really interesting pieces. And I also um, contacted some people who I know who, you know, I might be familiar with their work, might have read an article that it's really similar to this. And, and so I, I do a little bit of both usually, mm -hmm. basically. Um, so yeah, we're working on the summoning issue now, which is going to come out in Halloween. And um, yeah, I've done exactly the same. I, I remember uh, thinking, oh, summoning, ceremonial magic. I, you know, I ask a couple of people whose work is really fitting for that. And um, yeah, in the call for submissions, I've, I've been, again, really fortunate because people have been pitching really amazing mm -hmm. things. And obviously you have to to be quite, you know, you know, you, you can't say yes to everybody. So, but yeah, it's usually a mixture of both of people who I know and, and new people who, you know, might be PhD students or writers within the field, um, that sort of thing. Yeah, I was going to say, have you had a, what kind of response have you had from people? Because like, you know, folk horror is having a bit of a moment in uh, yeah. TV and film and the culture in general. And, and they're part of your part of your magazine sort of focuses on that. So have you found that people have, have been really wanting to, to write for you? People have been amazing, really. I mean, I'm always surprised. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really spoiled in that. I get such, a, such an amazing, you know, bunch of people posting on Instagram and on Twitter saying, oh, I love the magazine. I, I look forward to the following issue. This is great. This is what I've always wanted. So I'm just, I, can't, I still can't, I mean, I'm doing what I love. I do it, I do it because I love it. Uh, but it's amazing to see that people really connect with that and, and you know, that really want to contribute. So um, artists and uh, photographers and writers and academics have been really positive about contributing. And I just think it's an amazing, it's an amazing thing coming from an amazing community because I think that the folk horror community is really, um, is really special. I mean, it's going to sound like a cliche, but, uh, you know, people are really, people are really positive and really kind. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've had, I've had a few bits and pieces um, sort of dealing with that. I had a, a short film which played at the uh, recent folk horror conference here at, at Falmouth, uh, which a colleague of mine, Ruth uh, Heholt, oh, who, yeah. yeah. Um, I was there as well. And I oh, were Yeah, uh, Ruth contributed to um, our second issue. You did, on the Hammer Horrors. Um, right, the Cornish yeah. Hammer Horrors, yeah, which which I love that piece. Um, so yeah, and it is a really nice community. So I just want to um, film. It's not a film magazine, but film obviously features quite heavily. Um, and I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about yeah, kind of your your vision for the magazine in terms of the different forms and the different types of things you want to cover, and if you have an overall plan, you know, for for each issue or or in terms of you know how much film stuff how much literature stuff how much kind of cultural and society stuff you want to you want to focus on yeah um i try to keep it quite eclectic so i think i mean there's history there's archaeology there's folklore there's film as you said and literature so i try to keep it um balanced 
So there's usually a piece about film, a piece about literature, and then several pieces about history, but always from different time periods so that it's kind of colorful and, you know, not, not too same because there's such a massive ground to cover that, you know, I mean, you could, you could possibly um, create an issue only about 19th century things or, you know, films and anything that you pick. But I think um, I just basically want it colorful and exciting. And um, I think that the key to that is mixing up different things. So yeah, Hammer Horror, uh, but also 19th century short stories and uh, folklore from say, you know, the Middle Ages until now, and then usually some ancient ancient stuff, stuff that is more like archaeological in nature. So that's sort of, you know, the essentials, I think, of, um, yeah, like the, like the pillars of the magazine in yeah. each, roughly, but, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, the eclecticism is, is one of the, one of the things I love about it. It's one of the things I love about magazines, you know, is spending time with a collection of work and just being taken to so many different kinds of places in a way that is, yeah, accessible, beautiful. And yeah, just, you just, you never know where, where you're going to end up either geographically or emotionally or uh, yeah. in terms of what you learn. Yeah. I mean, geographically we are, um, when, when I started the magazine, I thought, should I do one about folk horror in general? And, um, and then I thought, no, but really what appeals to me is British folk horror um, well, and Irish to a certain extent as well. But um, I just wanted it to be focused on here. And I thought, well, this is going to be quite tricky in terms of, you know, politically tricky. But then I thought I could pull it off because um, A, I'm Spanish. So it's not like, you know, I can't, I, I'm not um, a nationalist or anything. And B, I wanted to keep it politically um uh, vocal so you know we deal with political issues and um, we've always been very open about our political um, inclinations so um, yeah I don't know why I'm telling you this but I always feel that it's really clear you know yeah no it's interesting to hear that because I think there is a strong political thread and a almost a kind of a kindling or a rekindling of the politics of um yeah kind of folk horror and witchcraft and you know kind of a lot of the 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 things that you're talking about which i think is again really interesting it's probably unexpected in a in a in a very kind of superficial sense when you pick up a magazine that looks like yours to have those kinds of conversations mm. but i think it's really refreshing yeah yeah i thought it was really important because obviously folklore has been and is weaponized by you know by right-wing people and um, the far right and um, I just wanted to make it really clear that that's not who we are. So. And that is very clear and, and very beautifully <laughs> delivered as well. So you mentioned uh, the next issue, um, Summoning, So, uh, which is um, due in October. So we are talking in the end of June. So that's quite a long time for... Yes. Uh, that's, is that a standard amount of time? And is that something that, you know... Well, that... yeah, I guess so. I mean, we publish twice a year and... After doing this, <clears throat> well, twice, but then last year we did a, a Christmas special as well. So that was three. Um, but yeah, I often wonder how people do this on a monthly basis. You know, it's just, I just can't think of, I mean, I guess that we are such a small team because it's literally just me. My partner helps me with a sort of, you know, admin side of things. And then there's the designer who's based in Canada and that's literally 
the team <laughs> so you know it's like we've got to do lots of things like all the packing and stuff um is something that i do in my house with my partner um so yeah probably takes me longer to to work on each issue than it would take to a whole team of people you know with our sub editor uh image researchers that sort of thing so um Yes, it is this standard. I start working on each issue months in advance, and um, I'm, I'm not sure how it would compare with other editors, but I've, uh, my contributors have told me that I'm a very hands-on editor, so, um, so maybe that also has an impact on the time, because we usually do a, a few rounds of corrections or, you know, expanding on certain areas that I think are more interesting or more relevant or whatever so that might have an impact on the on the length of preparation really well uh, it sounds like a labor of love and uh, it definitely feels like one when you're reading one um, so yeah thank you so much for yeah for putting the magazine together and for keeping at it in what must be challenging times um, thank you very much yeah and thanks for talking to me today you're very welcome it's been a pleasure Gabriel Solomons is the editor for Beneficial Shock, a fully illustrated film magazine that comes out once, sometimes twice a year. Thanks for joining me today, Gabriel. You're welcome. It's nice to be here. What made you want to start uh, Beneficial Shock as a print magazine? Um, well, like Phil, my partner and I have always spoken about when we when we speak about the magazine is that it sort of started on the picket line because uh, Phil's a massive socialist. Um, and we were picketing because we're both university lecturers. I'm on design, he's on illustration. We'd sort of known each other before. And it was funny because when I met him um, outside on the picket line, because there was issues obviously with teaching and you know, staff and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I'd, I'd sort of known about him and we chatted now and then, but I was actually his first commissioned editor because he was at university at the same time that I was at University of the West of England and this is going back quite a bit to 2000 2001 um, and I commissioned him for a magazine that I'd done as a student back then uh, it wasn't really to do with film but it was to do with design and illustration and when we were chatting on the on the picket line we just got talking about our passions and I'd, I'd been doing magazines for quite a while um, I've been doing uh, a magazine called uh, The Big Picture, which you know about because you wrote for The Big Picture, which sort of started off as a print mag and we had sponsors and people that, that helped us get it up and running. But then after about 20 or so issues, it went fully digital, so it became a website. So I was really itching to get another print magazine up and running. Um, film is, is just an absolute passion of mine. I've never really taught it because I've, I've mainly, my background is in, in, in design. Uh, but ever since I was a kid and saw probably Superman when I was living in the Middle East, when I was about five years old, constantly been passionate about it. And I had experimented with a, a project when I was working for a publisher on uh, film objects and I worked with illustrators and Phil actually helped me to get some of those illustrators that were on the, the uh, on the illustration course at UWE. And it made me think about the idea of wanting to do a publication which was purely visual. Because the issue about 
making film magazines, a lot of times it costs a lot of money to get the rights to reproduce the imagery. Um, if you're working directly from uh, film imagery. Um, and I just thought there was a great opportunity to, to do something that was kind of connecting with like a visual uh, response to film and something that was kind of using people's imagination um, and was also bypassing the whole thing of, of having to spend a fortune on, on trying to get the rights for these images. So it just worked really great. And Phil and I just were passionate about talking about all these fringe films and stuff that we were interested in that almost was less to do with film that was more to do with like culture and stories and narrative because both design and film, uh, sorry, both design and illustration are all about narrative storytelling. You know, whether you're trying to sell something to someone or you're trying to, you know, kind of illustrate a story, you know, in the newspaper or, you know, magazine or whatever. So we just had this massive passion to create it. We didn't exactly know what the format was going to be, but we knew that we wanted to have a fully illustrated film magazine. And that's basically how it started. Right. So that kind of pragmatic um, focus in terms of, yeah, like the saving money, but has led to something which is which is really unique, which is a completely illustrated sort of no, no advertising based magazine, which must be an incredibly challenging thing to put together. Can you sort of talk a little bit about the process of, of putting one of those issues together? Yeah, it's it's really challenging, but uh, I think in a way, what I've always felt by being involved in independent magazines rather than mainstream stuff, because I did work in mainstream for a bit at the start of my career and for newspapers, and it's a very cutthroat sort of business. But I think the idea of independent magazines now has got a much bigger support network of people that are generous in terms of distributors, in terms of shops and outlets out there that kind of are shouting about it and talking about it because they're really you know, they rely on the success of those magazines doing well, which means that they do well, but they're also passionate about it because, you know, the early part of my career, I was putting a lot of magazines, anything I was doing was having to go mainly into WH Smith's and the big outlets. And then they weren't really passionate about magazines. It was just like volume, um, you know, and they were selling it alongside, you know, chocolate bars and, you know, all sorts of other stuff. So now that there's an infrastructure that I think supports independent magazines, there's a lot of generosity. I think a lot of people are trying to help each other be quite successful, less cutthroat. I think a lot of people are doing these projects alongside full-time work. So it's kind of like a labor of love. It's sort of passion projects, it's hobbies. And I think people are a lot more willing to get involved in that, you know, for free a lot of times. And I think there's a sustainable model there to a certain degree. You still have to rely on that generosity, but not take a piss. You know, that you're not just thinking this is going to continue forever, that you're not being able to pay people. But I think what the value about what we're doing with Beneficial Shock and how we're able to kind of keep it going the way that we do on a very, very small budget in a way. I mean, although we put most, well, we put all of the budget into the printing because we want it to be the best possible thing out there in terms of the quality because the, the people that we work with are great. But I think the sustainability about it is primarily a lot of it is down to fill and his connection with illustrators <clears throat> and his relationship because he's been teaching it for you know 15 years he's an established illustrator he's in contact with people all over the world and i think they value his input but i think because of the structure of the magazine is that one of the things that we say with our statements of intent at the beginning of the magazine is this idea that we really want to value the authorship of the people that we collaborate with. So the model is slightly different 
that, you know, instead of just sending a piece off to an illustrator and saying, right, we want this in this sort of box in this sort of format, what we're trying to do is to level the playing field that all the illustrators and the visual communicators in the magazine have ownership and a little bit more control over that work. So they become authors. And I think there's a lot of illustrators out there and people that we work with that don't really get those opportunities. So when we speak to them, we say, look, we can't necessarily pay you for this, you know, in the conventional sense, but, and we know we don't, we know you don't need the reputational thing of being involved in the magazine, but what we're doing is we're giving you freedom. So we're giving you freedom to authorship, you know, to do a comic or to do a piece of design linked into a passion project you've got for a film or something you're really, really excited about. And we leave it up to them. A lot of people refuse and they say, nah, well, I can't do it because I've got to prioritize this. I've got to do that. 90% of them, 95% of them agree because of that relationship thing that they sort of feel like they want to do it for Phil in a way yeah. um, or that they love the idea of the freedom of doing the project. My role as the editor is that I'm more connected with the people that write and you being a contributor to the magazine, you know, since we started, because we're now on the sixth issue and you've contributed a few times. I think, again, there's that generosity of spirit, but also the openness to be able to say, you know what, if you don't want to contribute, if you've got other things going on, we totally understand that. Yeah. So I think in terms of the, the structure and the, the, the financial side of things, I think we, we're always very open from the beginning you know, of how it's going to work, that we put all the money, we don't make any money from this. This is a passion project for us as well. But it's about trying to change the model of how how a magazine is created, you know, in terms of the, the contributions and the collaborations. So I think that's the thing that sustained it. Um, we moved from being a biannual to now an annual. So it all happens like once a year, which I think also helps the process. Uh, which also gives the freedom and the flexibility of time that people might have three or four months to work on something without us kind of being hard-nosed and saying, right, you need to get this back to us in two weeks. Um, so I don't know if that was a very long-winded way of answering your question, but I guess that's just explains a little bit more about how it sustains itself. Yeah, no, absolutely. That was fantastic. Let me just close the window because it seems that there's someone's having a party in the street. <laughs> and we're not invited. Maybe. Quiet, bud. Oh, yes, the gardeners are here. I forgot the gardeners were coming today. My wife sorted it out, though, so it's okay. Um, um, yeah, I think as well, from a from an author's point of view, I think, you know, one of the one of the great things about it is the the time and the space to to not only write the piece, but to to have it kind of come to life through those beautiful illustrations you know which i think is is such a it's such a privilege you know to have to work on a piece and then have someone respond to it visually and then it kind of be reproduced in that way there's something really really wonderful about that which i absolutely love and is certainly one of the the you like you say the 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 reasons for doing so on an, art, on an artistic level i think as a writer is certainly being part of a project like that um so yeah it's really you know lo lovely and kind of affirming to talk about independence and freedom in that way um the... it's interesting what you say there because a lot of the writers actually say that because there's an excitement level especially but writers that have done it over you know a few issues is that they get really excited because they're not quite sure what's going to come of it because it's yeah. not like we pair we have with a few writers i think what's happened what's what's quite nice is that we've got you know we've got an illustrator and a writer that have now worked together 
three or four times, which has been really, really nice. And, you know, one of them is based, you know, James Charisma, who's the writer, and that is his actual last name, his brilliant last name. I had to check that with him when I first got in contact with him. But he lives out in Hawaii. And uh, Jason Raish, who's an illustrator, <coughs> who lives in New York, and they've, they've done three collaborations together. And they finally met up in New York, I think it was last year. And it was so nice because they really loved working together. You know, James had never seen his work before the first time that they did a piece. And then it partnered up and they saw each other's work and James was absolutely blown away by it. And then they really enjoyed working where there was this interesting partnership between the words that James wrote. You know, Jason was kind of really complimented it well. And it was like, that was a great match. So. I think they've ended up doing some work together beyond that because I mean Jason's a really established illustrator out in the states, um, and James has got his own thing. You know, he's running a, a media company out in Hawaii, and he's doing all sorts of exciting stuff. But this platform is something that's quite unique, where these people come in, and it's like they're becoming firm friends through that kind of relationship. So what you said about the excitement that a writer has that you wouldn't have that if you were just partnered with an image from the movie. It's yep. just it's totally different the way that we do it. Yeah, because it's not they're not a lot of the time it's not even recreating images from the films. It's 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 a similar illustrative process to what we go through as writers, which is you know our relationship to it, which might be more abstract. It might be more expressionistic. It might not necessarily. It's not going to be a straight. They're not straight reviews that we write. So, and they're all around these themes that you sort of set for the issues, which are you know which I like. I like kind of writing on a theme anyway. Yeah, you mentioned. Uh, well, sorry, I started to change that. Um, obviously, kind of the, the challenges are, you sort of alluded to some of them there, you know, uh, in any um, economy, in any kind of uh, time are going to be, you know, difficult. So you obviously have to love magazines. So, um, and you've obviously been involved in magazines for a long time. What is it about printed magazines that, that appeals to you, you know, that, that you really like? I think it's probably the same thing that appeals to me about people that like having any physical stuff around them. You know, you've got posters behind your head. You know, people have got artworks on their walls. There's something about the value of the object. And I think it's, you know, yes, we're living far more in a digital world. And I think people accept that. And I think that whole notion of the death of print that was suggested at one point is, was obviously, you know, um, a fallacy. But I think it's the idea of the evenness. I think what we do is that we define ourselves a lot of times. And I don't, I'm not talking about this in terms of my generation, because I know my kids are very different, you know, because they're 12 and 14 and they define themselves slightly differently, but they still surround themselves with objects. And I think the nature of a physical magazine is its permanence. I think online stuff is too impermanent. It goes by through a scroll. And it's very hard to then reconnect with it, you know, and are you going to have a tab with it or are you going to keep stuff here, there and everywhere? The permanence of the physicality for me is something collectible. And I think that's the value about what we do is that it's the physicality of having it, being able to leaf through it at your own, you know, want you know, your own choosing. What I like about hearing back from some of the, the readers is the idea that they sometimes cut out pages, which I've actually done. And I've stuck them up as pieces, you know, as like print pieces. But I think that's the difference between having something like Beneficial Shock, because all the pieces in there are all original pieces of artwork. So, you know, whether you want to have this thing on your wall or not really doesn't matter. But I think it's the idea of the physicality, the permanence, the being able to revisit it, leaf through it, 
And I think this, I, I still am a firm believer about the idea of touch. A lot of people talk about this, that we're losing that ability of touch. You know, COVID taught us about the idea of what did we miss most was hugging people, right? And I think that tells us something about the nature of how important it is to have physical things around us. And I think if you have an emotional connection to an object, which if you're looking through the magazine, if you're a writer, if you're an illustrator and you've got that physical thing in front of you, you've got an emotional connection. If you're a reader and you're reading about that particular film or that piece of artwork, you've got an emotional connection, you've got the physical thing in front of you. So it might sound all highfalutin, a little bit romantic, but I think there's a nature about touch that I still think, and I'm, because I'm a believer in that, I will push print as far as I possibly can. Uh, yeah, no, you're among friends uh, here, you know, I'm very much of a similar mindset in terms of that sort of tactility and proximity. Um, I've always loved the object and being close to the object, you know, like, as you, you know, surrounding myself with the things um, has always been a big part of, yeah, just the kind of feeling comfortable um, and sort of connected to the world. So, yeah, I completely understand that. Um, I'd also add, yeah. I think what I was just going to add, Neil, as well, for the illustrators, and I think for the writers as well, there's something significant still, and I, I, I'm not 100% sure how to nail it down, for them to have things in print. I mean, yeah. you as a writer, I mean, I know you do podcasts, and you do lots of other things, but I don't know if I ask the question back to you is about how important is it that your written pieces appear in print? massively you know i think because you, you you i can see them in a different way you know so the collect you know the the work that i've done is sort of collected and you know the print work and there's something about just walking past it you know and i remember getting you know the first thing i had in print i think was probably the big picture you know was was i think a piece a piece on ikiru and um what was it? Yeah, Ikiru and something else. Can't remember now. Um, I remember that one. Um, and there was just something about getting it, you know, and sort of seeing it, and, and and as well. And this is sort of coming up in these conversations, seeing my work alongside others' work, you know, yeah. in a way that when you're online, and I have a link to the thing I've done, I save the link, yeah. but it goes to that thing. Whereas when I sit down and go through a magazine, I see my work, but then I see the work of other people alongside it. And there's something about being part of that collective that collective voice, you know, and that collection, you know, particularly Beneficial Shock is a collection of work, which is, yeah, it's, it, it, it makes you feel good, you know, about the work that you've done and the labor that you've done and being part of something. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think it's really important for me in terms of seeing the work that I've done. I don't forget anything I've written in print, um, but I forget loads of stuff I've written for online <laughs> yeah and that's yeah that is the interesting thing about not not it's it's the nature of the, the speed isn't it of digital things yeah i think it's our mentality that might change in 20 years time we might not be having the same discussion but i think the idea of at the moment there's still this idea of, of what you said i think is so important because i've never i've never really considered it you know when i've thought about the writing perspective although i write for it i know what i feel about it it's always quite nice to hear from other people about and I think what you mentioned about the collection, being able to see the work next to other people, that's a really, yeah, I think that's really valuable. So what were some of the magazines that kind of inspired you and kind of got you into magazines in the first place? Were there sort of seminal things that you had to have every issue of or you just loved the look of when you went into a shop? Yeah, I mean, the thing from a film perspective, it was probably Empire. And when I was living in the States, it was Premiere, which is kind of like, you know, the equivalent mm. of it. 
But there was a, a magazine that came out, which was actually produced in Bath, which is not far from where I live, uh, called Hot Dog. And that actually didn't last very long. That was a film mag that I actually, I, I really enjoyed. It died a death maybe after about nine, nine issues. Yeah. Uh, and I was really sad to see it go. Because what I think is great about film magazines, it's not like music magazines that there'd be you know, hundreds of them. You know, with film magazines, there's always been very few. Yeah. Um, and then you get a monopoly. And if you have like Empire monopolizing, you know, and I know that there's, you know, more film mags out there now, but I think they're a lot more independent because I think the ability to make magazines has become democratized. So it's, it's less of a difficult thing. But um, yeah, I think the magazines that inspired me the most, I think when I was younger, I, I really got into magazines fairly late. I mean, I, I loved comic books. And that's where I got passionate about typography. So I loved, you know, reading comic books. And, you know, one of my biggest regrets was getting rid of these fantastic comics that I actually used to keep in plastic envelopes. When I was about 12 or 13, I was like, oh, I don't need this stuff anymore. I'll give it to someone else. And I gave it to like a third cousin somewhere who's obviously been selling them online and making an absolute fortune. Or so I assume, because I had some really priceless ones. But the magazines that I think I was most passionate about, there was a magazine that came out um, of America and it was a music magazine called Ray Gun. And that was sort of around late eighties, early nineties. Um, and it was totally unconventional in terms of the design. It was designed by David Carson and it was music because I was passionate about music, loved reading music because I used to read Q and enemy and all that sort of stuff. But this was totally different because it was a hybrid. It was conceptual. It had, you know, um, crazy stuff in it. It was breaking the grid. It was deconstructivist. It was all that sort of stuff. I think it introduced me to the idea of design at a time that I was thinking about what I wanted to do. So that was seminal for me. Um, there was another magazine, a literature magazine called Zembla, which came out. Um, that again, only lasted 10 issues. And that was, um, uh, again, just a deconstructed magazine. It was dealing with literature. What I loved about it, though, is it came up with features. It used to have features with, like, dead people. So it would have, like, an interview with someone who, who was dead. So it might have Jimi Hendrix in there, and it had this fantastic interview imagining what he would be responding to this type of stuff, and it was about the afterlife. So I think what I've always been driven towards probably is imaginative stuff, things that weren't towing the line you know, and there were a little bit unusual and conceptually led. And I think ultimately what I've ended up with, with Beneficial Shock is probably similar in tone. I mean, the first magazine I ever did in university was called Bauhaus, which was this marriage of illustration and graphic design, which is the one that I commissioned Phil to do a piece on. And that again was inspired heavily by things like Ray Gun, you know, deconstructing things, but about conversations. Because I remember that it was an interview with um, Brian Ferry, for Ray Gun, which the interview was so bad and the interviewer hated all the response that came back. So he printed the whole thing using Zap Dingbats. So when it was in the magazine, you couldn't read it. It was just in Dingbats because that was the protest that he had towards the interview. So that imaginative aspect, I yeah. think, was, was really inspired me to, to think about what magazines could do. Um, and they didn't. And most of these things were pretty independent. They always struggled financially they always struggled but they had a very small readership that was passionate about that what was coming out so it wasn't the mainstream stuff it was quite um, niche cool yeah um hot, hot dog is interesting because yeah that was i really liked it i thought it had a nice irreverence at the time yeah. um 
and they did a feature on film stock which is pretty much the only print feature in a magazine wow. we had so i've always yeah. got a soft spot for for hot dog magazine um yeah. so just to close yeah what what can we expect from you next you're in the works on the latest issue i believe we are yeah so so each issue has got a theme so this uh issue's theme is uh courage and strength um so it's yeah i mean it's you know we like to think we say it's a little bit more of the same in terms of if you already love beneficial shock then you're going to love you know everything that we do every time so we we always kind of try to challenge ourselves to come up with something a little bit different uh we're working with you know again a whole raft of fantastic illustrators you know we've got features on all sorts of stuff linked into it we've got things about you know 80s movie meatheads you know so looking at the conventional notion of what strength was like in the 80s when you're thinking about what this you know the heroes were like like you know schwarzenegger and stallone and Van Damme and all that sort of stuff. And then we cover more of the, you know, unusual things, the more irreverent stuff. You know, we're looking at things like moving mentors and, you know, but less the conventional ones and just thinking about what actually makes a moving mentor. Is it more the normal type of stuff? You know, we're looking at vulnerability in film characters. Um, you know, we're tackling issues about, you know, we've got a really nice piece about the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey and how that has played its way out in films, you know, especially franchises like The Matrix or Lord of the Rings or Star Wars. But um, so, yeah, we've got a whole pile of different stuff, but it's, um, yeah, it's, it's going to be exciting because we've got a few new things that we're toying around with in terms of the format. Uh, so we've got pullouts, we've got things because we've got a piece that's a, a very long um, kind of narrative and it's actually done by Mr. Doodle who if you check him out online um, he's doing some amazing things he's purely doodles things out but he's doing this hero's journey all about the matrix so it's one long 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 piece of art looking at this hero's journey through the you know the 12 stages of the hero's journey um, so it's going to be exciting it's going to be good looking forward to it me too. It's always exciting. So I can't wait to I can't wait to get hold of that. So yeah, thank you for yeah, thank you for the work that you're doing with Beneficial Shock. And yeah, thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Neil. Kathy Lomax is the editor of Garageland magazine, an art periodical. Lucy Bolton is the guest editor of a 2020 edition titled Living British Cinema. Thank you for joining me today, Kathy Lomax, editor of Garageland, and Lucy Bolton, guest editor of the Living British Cinema edition of Garageland. Lovely to talk to you both. Hi, thank you. Uh, so yeah, let's start with you, Kathy, if that's all right. And what made you want to start or edit a, a print magazine? Um, I think I just always really liked magazines. Um, just sort of thinking back, I used to love fashion magazines when I was growing up and then um, kind of music zines and it just continued and it just felt like something that I can do. I think the whole zine culture thing made it feel like it was um, a very um, kind of accessible way of communicating just things that 
I was thinking about. So I, I made various zines at different times. Um, and then I, I did a, a fine art degree and a fine art masters. And I started making art zines as part of that. So Garage Land was kind of a continuation of that starting point. Great. Uh, Lucy, do you have a, a kind of a keen interest in print magazines as well? Oh, I really do. I mean, sort of lifelong, I'd say. Um, I remember being at school and doing work experience on magazines, fashion magazines like Cosmopolitan, Company, Vogue, Elle, because I really wanted to be a magazine journalist. And uh, I remember when British Elle was launched, Kathy, you'll remember this, I think I was, I think I was in the sixth form. And basically until um, I left home probably, you know, in my 20s after university. I had every issue of British L because it was just so exciting to see the magazine yeah. coming out in, in England at that time. It was just brilliant. Um, so, yeah, I love magazines. I mean, Kathy's magazines that she edits are so beautiful, like the production quality at Standard is so lovely. And I just love also short, short pieces of writing, illustrated. I just think it works really well for talking about film, obviously not quite as well as having a moving image that's you know planned, a bit Harry Potter-ish that is, but um, you know, being able to take stills and uh, freely as many as you want, you know, not like in an academic book and, and be able to write really sort of with impact and verve about what you think about it and I see it all captured and printed on beautiful color on beautiful paper that you can touch and smell. <laughs> is yes I'm a magazine fetishist. <laughs> You're among friends, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> Remembering loads of other magazines that I loved, um, like Elle, but also Honey and 19 were really important. And then The Face and ID I used yeah, to have. definitely. <laughs> you used to do makeup for the covers of those magazines as well, didn't you? I did, yeah. I used to be a makeup artist and I worked um, for lots of magazines, especially magazines like The Face um, and ID and even for British Vogue a couple of times which was sort of my oh my god I'm working for Vogue kind of <laughs> a really special thing. Yeah. The Face is a is a big one for me for sure um, but you, you sort of touched on it there but you know what is it about magazines you know that, that kind of make for such a such a kind of specific but enjoyable experience for you? I think there's a couple, there's a few things depending obviously on the type of magazine we're talking about. So I think back to my teenage years with me and my best friend Sarah on Saturday mornings with our Jackie magazines arriving, sitting there doing the quizzes and circling things. And it was just like the highlight of our week because, and even younger than that, Look In magazine, the ITV, you know, that had the beautiful art painting covers. I mean, I just love those. I've got some vintage ones of those. It was the, the regularity of their arrival, which is very exciting. And I know that Kathy and I have both taken out subscriptions to magazines since we've been in lockdown for, in order to keep us with this fix of, you know, something arriving regularly that is a real shot in the arm of, for your imagination and your visual imagination and that um, just takes you all over the... I mean, particularly through the arts, I think. A magazine like... Um, even a sort of high-end magazine like Harper's Bazaar, it, it has lots of little pieces. Of, this month has something about Barbara Hepworth, about uh, the Whitechapel Gallery, about 
Bloomsbury, set, everything. It's just so exciting. So I think it's the it's it becomes part of your life if you subscribe to it and it turns up on your doorstep every month. Uh, it's just, it's such an exciting arrival. You never know what's what's going to be in it. I think there is definitely that thing where you feel part of a kind of club or something. I know that that's exploited quite a lot, isn't it? By something like the Beano or something where you can become, you know, you can join and become a member of something. And I think you feel that with a lot of magazines. And I, and I also think that they can respond quite quickly to things um, in a way that books can't. Um, I, I guess they're not as immediate as a newspaper or as um, a radio show or something, but, th but they can, they're quite nimble. They can respond quite quickly to things. And as an editor, I just love I guess it's like a curating process. I love thinking about who I'd like to put in them. I think of a theme and then I'm like, oh yeah, they might do something interesting. And then putting together people from very different places and bringing them together in the magazine. So for the Living British Cinema um, issue of Garageland that um, Lucy Guest edited, we had a real, really good mix, I think, of um, academics writing about film and artists responding to film or talking about their practice and how they use film. Um, and some very sort of, uh, you were talking about shorter pieces. I love that when you can have a really sort of nice little snippet that people hopefully can just read and enjoy rather than always having a big long article that's um, quite a chore maybe to read. But of course, yeah, the Vanity Fair syndrome, please turn to page 378, yeah. wherever it is, like, oh no. Um, <laughs> but the, um, uh, something about, but these days though, Cathy, the magazine, is, it's not, I mean, you know, we could have, we've got the Living British Cinema website, but we could have a, a blog or something, we could put stuff up on a WordPress site straight away. So in fact, there's something actually more kind of long form about, or slow um, production about the magazine these days. Yeah, it's sort of an intermediate thing, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think that's interesting. Yeah, that, that, that intermediacy, because it's, it does, Sort of it's where a lot of different things meet. That juxtaposition, I think, is really interesting of the turning the page and how does one thing reflect other, which is is kind of different on a website where you're kind of clicking back and can kind of go anywhere. So I, I love that. And also, like you say, that you're, you're bringing together different people who are writing in a, almost the same way in terms of like the, the style of the magazine, which might be different to their other work in other places. Or, you know, so you're kind of bringing together and challenging people to to kind of to, to get on board with the kind of the, the theme of the the magazine and its style, which I've always found really interesting and in seeing how different writers adapt to that, be it academic to journalist or, you know, something that might be more long form into a capsule and stuff like that. You mentioned there about the, um, yeah, the, the issue. So let's kind of, let's move on to talk about that, if that's okay, which is such a fabulous issue. Um, and I'd love to talk about the curation of it, you know, and the, that, that process of, you know, deciding on, the theme and uh, the, the contributors and you know was it a mixture of people that you knew individually or or um... should I say something about the theme Kathy about magician and Mark? I mean you know it was Kathy's very kind to credit me as guest editor and you know I did, we did kind of um but made mo the curatorial work and most of the you know the, the connections and the commissioning was certainly done by Kathy. But Living British Cinema is um, it's not really an organisation. It's too loose and informal for that. But it's a kind of um, group, I guess you could say, an umbrella term that we started using at Queen Mary, where where we both are. Kathy's doing her PhD and I 
fantastic work there. In about, about 2010, um, I got some funding from Student Experience Fund or some, uh, I think, called Public Engagement Fund. And we had some events. We had a David Lean study day. We had Vivian Lee day, um, Sally Potter day. We've had various people come and speak. We've done three festivals, three three-day festivals that were just terrific, where we had really great um, mixture of guests and things. And then, for various reasons, it's become more research-focused in the last few years, but it very much depends upon who's around at the time and who's got ideas for projects. We've got a Facebook group, we've got over 3000 followers on the Facebook group. And um, it's really intended to, it's called Living British Cinema in order to encapsulate many different aspects about British cinema, that it's still alive, that we are, that we are living it because we're watching it, working it. And of course at Queen Mary, we've got loads of students who are making it as well. So that's really important. But also that um, we want to really kind of, um, energize people's love for British cinema. I mean, this issue is perfect for that. You know, I had the opportunity to write about Sally Potter's London story, which is you know 25 years old now, and stuff about Fenella Fielding and Dirk Bogard and things like that that people really are passionate about. And the idea behind this was to kind of show it was a fantastic outlet for living British cinema to express. To, to be a showcase for the expression of all this passion and um, love and creativity that people have for particular elements of British film. So it's, um, Kathy and I dis discussed it, we wanted to do a publication for British cinema and then Kathy you know, brilliantly suggested that we do a takeover of her magazine for an issue, um, which I was incredibly happy to, to do and support. I would just yeah. say also, it was fabulous to be able to have, no, just quickly, sorry, it was fabulous to be able to feature, you know, with my um, PhD supervisor's hat on, it was fabulous to be able to feature not only the project of Cathy, but work by um, Abigail Fine, Lisa Duffy, uh, Jade Evans, all previous and current PhD students at Queen Mary. So that was just wonderful to be able to do that to bring us all together in this format. Um, yeah, um, I, I just, um, when I'm thinking about a theme for the next issue of the magazine, I, I kind of just try and pick up on things that I'm interested in at that time, um, kind of things that just seem to be current or, you know, just themes that, that seem to be generally of interest or just wait for chance intersections with things. I mean, I, I, I really hope to be inspired by something and um, I can't really remember why or how it's, we started thinking about it, but living British cinema just seemed to be such a, a great idea. Um, I've been working a bit on the website for living British cinema. So we had been commissioning some writing there, hadn't we Lucy? Yeah. So that was a- We nice commissioned song. a piece from Pam Hutchinson and from Lisa Duffy, uh, Pam on, um, Barbara Windsor and Lisa um, and so it was we were starting to want to publish more pieces of writing which we had done a long time ago but it had kind of got lost a bit um, and also the opportunity for people who were working on other aspects of kind of visual culture that touched on cinema like Abigail for example who's working on Cinderella 
um, but who wanted to be able to explore their fascination for a cinematic element um, that, that really interests them. So yeah, it was, it, it was a way of um, showing just how wide the range of work we can incorporate under that umbrella. I, I always like to think of a magazine as a kind of source book. I mean, often issues I've done before have gone alongside an exhibition I've curated because um, my, my kind of main job, I guess, is an, as an artist and a curator um, alongside doing a, a PhD um, in film studies. And um, so this was a really good chance to include some people that I'd been working alongside and um, just to see what, what they come up, came up with. I've been doing some work with the Fenella Fielding Archive, which is why we had all the Fenella content in there. Yeah. Um, and Never a bad it just thing. seemed to an opportunity <laughs> to miss having, yeah. having those pictures of her apartment because it's something that's not going to be like that for very long. So I really wanted to do that. But also to be able to write about, to be able to pursue something that you're really interested in that is inspired by your, you know, everyone's love for film, but that isn't, does perhaps you can't spend enough time to write an 8,000 word academic article on and don't want to. Um, and for example, we've also got something in, in, the, in the issue on rocks by Alice Pember, who's a, another PhD student at Queen Mary. And that was such a, that film's really linked to, it's related to Alice's PhD, but it's also related to our local area where Queen Mary is and where, where we live. And it's, uh, you know, it, it, we were able to get something out on that film really quickly. Yeah, and, and I love that we had that film. And then we had um, the Barbara Windsor film. Yeah, um, Cockney Sparrow. Barrows Casting, yeah, yeah, which is another kind of uh, local East End film. So that mm. felt like a really nice um, kind of juxtaposition combination of articles to have. So I think putting it together, I always try and think about covering quite a lot of ground within the theme, if possible. Um, I also really thought it was important to have Ash's piece on. Oh, I forgot the name of the film, but it was of quite yeah, a kind of hard. Yeah, yeah. So that yeah. was really interesting to have that as well. Um, alongside maybe, you know, like the Fenella things, which were a bit more um, kind of nostalgic, maybe. Um, and then the the Billy Fury piece that Alex Michon did was really great and, and good fun. Um, See, Alex is a great long-standing now Living British Cinema collaborator. She's made, Alex is a friend of Kathy's, but she's contributed to loads of events we've done now. And she's an artist who makes these fabulous kind of corsages with film stars on that we've worn for all our events with Vivian Lee and everybody. So, you know, it's fantastic to, to be able to bring her in to actually write something for the, for the magazine. Yeah, I, I guess it's... something else that's maybe... Um important is that we don't have any advertising in the issue so it's always a little bit of a um not a struggle putting it together but it means having to raise money to to afford to print the issue and that's another reason why i seek out and enjoy working with other people and other um organizations on issues because hopefully they can bring um some of their contacts and also maybe some financing so we were able to pay um, some of the contributors for the issue this time around, which is great. We don't always have that luxury. Um, so, yeah, I feel like I've been talking a lot. 
that's all right it's great it's lovely to yeah lovely to hear you talk about it um interesting there to to sort of hear it as a with a kind of university head on as a as a way of showcasing research but also the research personnel and the research interests of a of an institution or a school or a project in the case of living bridge cinema but in a way that is just really beautiful there's a really kind of wonderful aesthetic you know kind of presentation of, of, of all these ideas which i think is just absolutely it's a wonderful way of conceiving of that thing that those of us who work in universities are told like how do we get this knowledge and this you know this kind of outside the walls of academia and a magazine feels like it's, such a beautiful yeah, way of doing that it's funny because actually i mean kathy's arrival at the university has been a, just this incredible step up in the aesthetics of our film work <laughs> generally obviously to have her amazing artwork i mean kathy's posters and paintings of just they're all over the arts building now because you know, they're just so wonderful um but yeah it, 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 I think I've always felt quite strongly that I didn't want to instrumentalize living British cinema and um, it's a very egalitarian um open to the public open to everybody uh, non-academic space and and so far we, we've managed to do that I think um you know you never know when it might might need to use it for something but at the moment it really is just um sort of and when I say networks I don't mean like again like networks that are instrumentalized in order to do anything they're just kind of people who want to share their love and news and work and enthusiasm on, on British film I mean so we have a long-standing relationship with Sally Potter at Queen Mary because she's her studio is quite near us and we've collaborated with her over various things, had some an internship and things like that, done stuff at the BFI for years. Um, we worked with her on her Spark archive and taught it as part of the module. It, but it was amazing to, for, to be able to go back to her to, to the London story and assess it now in light of the politics, the European politics, and um, uh, the uh, sort of the issues that she was engaging with there. And I'd, I'd forgotten the detail of that. When I put it on, I was just sort of laughing. I was open mouthed at that, just the, 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 the present day relevance of her work. So if that's a really short film, but to be able to just pick it out and highlight it, and hopefully some people will have sought that out now, because it's actually on the DVD of um, the gold diggers and stuff. It's actually quite easy to find now. But that kind of, that's what we mean by living as well, is to show that it's still, mm it needs to be seen now yeah and that goes back to what you were saying Kathy about the um you know the, the idea of it being a source book essentially and kind of you know I think that one of the things I've always loved about magazine writing is that that kind of capturing the moment you know in a way that like you say you you think of a film you think of a, the kind of the context around it and you're able to very quickly to to kind of get something on the paper and, and there's something about that that speed and immediacy which is captured in the writing I think often you know and it makes it feel urgent and relevant to the now in a way that if you were to do it as an academic journal 18 months of editing would would naturally change that and that's not necessarily a bad thing but it's very very different and I think that you know it's really exciting to see so much kind of passion and kind of immediacy in the in the issue and the magazine um because you know yeah, I for I one I'm someone who really believes that that's a very specific thing that needs to be kind of nurtured I like to think that um, it's a place where people can kind of not experiment with their writing exactly, but maybe it's something that they've just discovered and they, they want to start thinking about it. So it can have that 
that kind of thing going on there. It doesn't have to be, as you say, the academic journal piece, which has to be peer reviewed and, you know, loads and loads of extra thought goes into it. These are sort of the beginnings sometimes of piece thoughts and thought pieces. Um, I, I got the chance to write about Stolen Face, which is a, a British hammer film, which I'd seen and was really interested in. And I kind of wanted to find out more about it really. So it gave me the chance. Um, and I also just wanted to flag up the interview that Sarah Cleaver did with um, Ben Wheatley, which was really great mm. to have in there. Um, and the piece, the interview with the director of the film about the clash, uh, White Riot, which was really nice. It was nice having that mix, as I say, that mixture. So we had those voices from um, filmmakers. Um, and yeah, and, and you interviewed Sarah Cleaver, I think a couple of weeks ago for the projections podcast that she does so yeah we did yeah there's a link yes <laughs> yeah definitely um yeah big fans of the projection podcast and sarah's work so and again yeah it's just it's just it's nice to see yeah sort of people that you follow and whose work you kind of catch in different places or collect that's what i love about magazines as well you know is the collection of people and and seeing their work alongside each other and and being able to kind of to get a sense of the different styles of writing in one place at one time you know rather than someone posts something on a website and you read it and then two days later you know there's, there's something about that like say that collection and that kind of conversation you have with the words and with the images as you as you enjoy the magazine so yeah I think there's also the obviously the the opportunity to produce really beautiful work really lovely illustrated or artistically complemented work um in the way that you know Little White Lies is is sort of a thing of beauty in itself, isn't it? Every issue. Um, but, um, sorry, did you hear that ping? Yeah, can you just say that one line again about the little Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Um, I've got it all turned off. I don't know why it came on, but um, yeah, uh, Little White Lies is, a, is, a, is an objet, isn't it? It's a thing of beauty that actually stands up to collection, you know, being collected on its own. And I think that that's something that you don't get, you know, every now and then you look for a piece that you wrote online five, 10 years ago and you can't find it or it's, and and you haven't got a record of that anymore unless you've saved it as a PDF or printed it off. Um, and there's something very, um, I mean, I have done a special issue of a journal that felt very much like doing a magazine. Kathy was in that as well, the one we did on Marilyn, uh, Marilyn Monroe and Kathy wrote an article about Marilyn as an inspiration for her artwork and the art, the issue generally was about the sort of ongoing cultural impact of Marilyn Monroe, how she's everywhere, Marilyn every day. And that felt like a bit like doing a magazine. I put my own photographs in there and asked people that I liked to write for it, interviewed friends who worked at the beer fight, things like that. But I think I treated that actually like, like you know, a fantasy magazine. Different people writing for it and contributing, didn't it? It was, yeah. you're right, it was a magazine. Yeah. I mean, I love doing Garage Land as well and it being completely independent because I can just do whatever I like. Yeah. Um, that's one of the great things about not having any advertisers and not really worrying about the money is I literally can put whatever I like in there. And <laughs> we do have some stockists um, and a distributor, so it will go off, you know, to the these places and we have subscribers and lots of university libraries subscribe to us as well so I feel 
we are being seen it's not it's not just doing it for our own benefit of making a beautiful thing there are people who look at it which is always a, a nice feeling that people are, are waiting for it yeah cool well hopefully more people will will see it now and uh, it's been added to my collection as well so it's been, yeah. you can subscribe and buy back issues on the transition gallery website Oh, don't worry. We will put it all in the show notes um, so that people know exactly where to find you. Um, and I'll put mine back on my big pile of magazines, um, which sit downstairs. Um, and yeah, thank you so much to, for, yeah, thanks so much for the issue, which is wonderful and for your continued work with Garage Land. And yeah, thank you for talking to me today. Thanks very much for having me. Great. Thank you to Maria, Gabriel, Catherine and Lucy for yeah taking the time to talk to me about magazines. So, Dario, yeah, what did you make of those conversations? Yeah, it's really interesting to me because, I, you know, I was thinking about this as somebody who in childhood was never really, um, you know, particularly influenced by magazines. And I've always bought them on a kind of ad hoc basis. Do you know what I mean? I'll, I'll go down to... Um, I'll go down to um, the BFI and I might buy a, a sound, science sound or a cineast or something. But I don't know what it is. It's just, I suppose it was a case of when I was, a, it's similar to, to what I've spoken about before, about being a very much a sort of, you know, um, sports kid really, rather than sort of arts or intellectual um, kind of kid. And then even getting it, when I was a sort of into films, I'd buy Empire magazine now and again. But then I suppose going to, going to university and, and suddenly you're to told about Kaidu cinema and, you know, this sense that the, the, the essence of cinema some, is somehow buried in the pages of Kaye, you know what I mean? And, and it's even more exotic because it's in French. It's like, I, you don't even have, you're not even allowed to, to understand it unless you can speak <laughs> French. But then you have, you know, cineast and film comment and, you know, I, I've just sort of read a lot more and, under, and, and uh, you know, used a lot of the material in there in at university and, and what have you and yeah but so but listening to sort of the influences of of the of the guys there who were, were talking about why and 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 what they're interested in doing and i just think that that sense of i mean you, you know it's interesting i think it's in um it, maria in from hellebore was was talking about the sort of ma magic and, and mystique of of the magazine and and it being not not hating the digital, but but it, it kind of being an antidote to the the digital. And it re that really struck me because it, it reminded me again how much I like writing on the typewriter, and you know it, it just allows you that sort of a different kind of headspace, but still to be able to create something and and, and write, you know, um, and obviously the the physicality of the object kind of ties into that. And there's some yeah, there's definitely something um, about sitting down and reading something that is that is physical you know I, I can't remember who who wrote this but there was somebody who was sort of like you know trying to read something that's that sat on top of water that's what it's like reading on the screen you know I can't I can't remember who said, yeah. said that but it's yeah there's something sort of different in terms of the relationship between the mind and the body if you know we're getting very philosophical when you when you read something that's on on the page and I love that that sense again something that links to the podcast in terms of the eclecticism 
of the magazines, even though they're in in um, thematic areas, but particularly sort of garage land, you know, the the, the the sort of idea of having, you know, really sort of niche topics and pe- things that you wouldn't find elsewhere and bringing those bringing those things to together. And, and I was just sort of really blown away and, and, and did have a, a kind of felt a kind of kinship with that thing of, you know, we are putting something together that we're that we're passionate about and we're doing it in the form that we want. And to hell with the fact that people would look from the outside and say, well, why the hell are you doing a print magazine? Because it's the digital age, you know, and, you know, people say to us, well, why, why are you not doing popular movies? Because your, your audience will be bigger. And, you know, it's just like, you know, because because we're not interested in that and we're, we're, we're interested in this and just yeah. really interesting stuff. And yeah, obviously, this is something that you've been into, you know, a lot more than me throughout your life. And hence why you put the the, in, the interview together. So I wonder from yourself, you know, what is it about film magazines beyond the obvious things that we've talked about there that really, that, that you are really into? Yeah, I think that they were, they were the first things I read about film, you know, when I started getting into film and there was a video shop over the road from the news agents where I was working. Um, mm. You know, so that, and starting and all sort of a period of watching more films that was i just i, I saw a few of them in front of me. it was only really empire at the time um you know that uh and then there was this one called sight and sound which we used to stock in this luton news agent which looked really hard <laughs> you know to a kind of 15 year old who's sort of <laughs> yeah. just getting into movies but i, yeah, I started yeah, to have yeah, a relationship yeah. between the you know reading reviews in empire and, and and getting stuff from the video shop you know, um, and being able to see gotcha. and get out things like, yeah, by the Coen brothers, you know, Hudsucker Proxy was a big one, you know, that was sort of discussed in. Right. And then I was like, okay, this sounds, you know, so just, it, it was a, it was the, a kind of spark moment really. Um, and then, yeah, just, there was something about entering that immediacy of that, of the magazine, you know, and it, that was felt very different to a book. Like you say, it's, you know, and I still, I think it's sort of cursed me really to try and read everything, you know, when I buy something quite quickly, because you know that it's, there's going to be another one coming along and it's going to supplant, you yeah, know, yeah, and yeah, yeah. wanting to, um, wanting to experience what's, what's been put together for this thing. And I think that a lot of that came from when I started reading Sight and Sound. Um, and then when I started traveling, I used to, you know, particularly love getting something from the airport or got something for, you know, magazines from America when, I would go to America and like, you know, buy film comment um, because just I didn't see it here. I didn't, you know, um, still living in Luton mm. and not going into London very much. But I think that there was there was a moment where sort of just reading for information became sort of reading for a kind of aesthetic pleasure. You know, when I used to get football magazines, um, you know, my, my, my dad would usually buy shoot and match, um, you know, on a Thursday, I think, whatever. It was, and then we would... We would read those and I would cut out pictures and all that kind of stuff. And then a magazine called 90 Minutes came along um, and I was just a little bit older. Oh, yeah, and it was, you know, it was much more geared towards an older audience. It was, you know, there was really, there was sort of funny columns. It was, you know, deeper interviews, uh, different kind of paper, you know, a kind of more serious um, yeah, thing. Yeah, and, yeah. and obviously getting into music as well and buying a lot of music magazines. It's just a period where I just became more interested in the whole experience of you know the 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 taking time out and sitting with this thing uh this object you know and as 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 we all know on this podcast um i love the object you know and it's just because it, it, they sort of they for me they sit alongside the the books and the records in terms and i've got a nice little collection downstairs of 
I got rid of a load. I mean, I used to have a real problem with magazines, like a proper, I would buy, you know, so many magazines for all different <laughs> yeah it was a problem, problem. I was spending an absolute fortune help. on it um, <laughs> yeah. Justin's listening to this so he used to work with yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. you will know well the, the huge stacks of magazines I had in the office that yeah. we used to share but um, I've, I've, I've recovered I'm a recovering magazine addict um, but I still I've still got some that I you know from places I went to or interviews that I just can't and they might be online you know they, they probably have mm. been digitised now but it's like I just I need I need to to see them I need to see the, the magazine and have mm. them as a as a thing that reminds me and sort of connects me to that time or that experience yeah. um yeah and but you are i mean you are let's say you know a, a classic is not the word but i think you would admit that that sense of being a, a collector that defines your almost you know uh if it's cinephilic or musicological appreciation of of being a fan like i remember you saying that you'd get you know the bait soundtrack on tape and on vinyl and on you want all the formats and it's kind of like that just yeah. doesn't compute to me you know what i mean so it's it's kind of like it's interesting how that and that's a, a particular kind of personality isn't it in terms of your your wanting to sort of engage with the whole um the, the, i don't know what the word is but the whole sense of being involved with this particular this particular thing that you're yeah, passionate about. absolutely you know i think it is wanting to yeah, wanting to kind of surround myself with the the thing in as many different forms as possible. You know, if Jenks is going to release a novelization of Bait, then I'll I'll buy that as well. Um, but you yeah. know, but that's the thing is, if a film yeah. comes out, or a, you know, if a filmmaker I know is coming out, you know, I'll buy the magazine, the men's magazines, if they're interviewed in there. You know, I've got several Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, sort of um, because you're you're right. You know, like I want to I want to read everything about it, and I want to, but I also want to kind of yeah surround myself with it you know and sort of it's something that lingers after the after the experience you know like and just have having it on the shelf almost retains the the moment of 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 experiencing it be that the film or a lot of the time with magazines to be fair it's the preempt you know it's like i'm buying things you know okay. it's part of my ritual of getting excited for something you know, mm. like the coming, yeah. the coming of the thing that I want. You know, and when yeah. I'm keeping those issues, I'm all, I'm, all, I'm often keeping the entirety. You know, I'm, and you would, you would really probably just shake your head at my ticket collection. You know, of <laughs> the tickets that I've got. Um, but it's the to me, it's the endlessness of that, though, you, because you can never complete. You know, the, the idea of being a completist is just a fool's game in my, you know, in my head, because it's like, like and like. You know what I mean? It's if I see something that um, that I really love, like say for example, Holy Motors, and I got the opportunity to go to see Leox Carax and listen to him, and I've read a few reviews of, of Holy Motors, but I don't feel the need to sort of. I mean, just to go back to the screening, the first person who asked, you know, because the question straight up, and it was a classical Q and A moment. The first person spoke, guy behind me mid-20s maybe late 20s hold up his holy motors dvd can you sign this copy didn't even ask a question and i was just kind of like you know oh, please please no <laughs> um and and it's but but it's that sort of in a way that's the kind of thing that i i find difficult to get my head around because you can never you can never ha you can never complete the the knowledge of any and any given thing so once i've got to a point where i'm like you know oh yeah i've, I've read this interview i've read that that interview and i know what i think about the film then 
that that's kind of that's kind of enough for me because there is so much else out there that it, I, I, I would just feel the weight of it on top of me all the time if I tried to yeah like no that, I, you know? I, I hear that you know and, and and sometimes the weight is you know is a lot because I think you know a lot of this is to do with <laughs> you know mortality you know and wanting to preserve yeah. the now and and, and 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 avoid that you know so the idea of going after is this kind of quest um for completion which i know i'm never you know i'm never going to complete anything really other than my life that'll be complete um but i think it's all tied in i think you know that I, there there is a you know maybe it's an avoidance um or a compulsion to yeah kind of you know, to to sort of consider my mortality in different ways you know to to, to be able to constantly mm. see the 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 journey travelled so far you know to kind of literally to walk through my house and see the books and the the records and the blue you know like this it's it's that's my life lived and I know it's you know not in terms of like oh look at the stuff I've bought but you know the things accumulated I'm very aware that there is probably a deeper you know kind of uh anxiety that that sort of plays out through the need to collect everything and like i just looked at the stuff i bought this this year and just think i've bought so much stuff this year and i think a lot of it is tied to yeah kind of other anxieties that have been displaced you know um, particularly about you know but on the other hand it's like i mean i think my my issue though and the other way is kind of the opposite in in that i I don't maybe emotionally attach Mm. myself to things you know what i mean as as a defense mechanism you know what i mean it's kind of like well this stuff is all going to disappear anyway so what's don't attach yourself to something that you're gonna you're gonna miss or may let you down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, do you know what I mean? It's like that's my kind of psychology around it. So it's not as if like any of these positions are the right no, ones or good yeah. or bad. It's just interesting how your personality plays out around the things that you are. And I think with. that there's a you know there is I do find a great comfort in the the object. You know, the idea of the aura of the thing um, that that kind of mm. does probably you know. Um, yeah kind of assuage a lot of those feelings you know they give it gives me a security to have the thing and collect the thing and look at the thing and know that it's there and a book or a record is not mm. gonna you know it might not be there after i've gone but um you know I'm, I, you know after i've gone it's not it's it's a relevant kind of thing but but for now it's here and it's there and i can see it and i can touch it and i can you know go back into it at any time um and get away from something yeah, 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 yeah. or process something through it and um yeah, you know, like I'll, I just do this thing. Like, what if a new record comes out? Like, and this morning, that's what I did. You know, with the when I talked about one of our aircraft is missing, I was like, oh, you know, I just, I didn't go online. <laughs> I went to the shelf and I got the books down and I sat there and Tessa did my hair and my makeup because um, she likes to do that. And I sat in her little salon that she's got downstairs <laughs> and I read the book. You know, oh, nice. and it was. It, yeah. it felt so nice to be able to do that, you know, to not go online, to have to yeah, know yeah, that yeah, yeah. within this, when things come up, there's there's gateways to things that I've there's already, you, can you know, and I, I think yeah, that's yeah, yeah. that's something I really like about it. And you know, old magazine interviews do mm. the same thing, where it's like, oh, I know, I've got, you know, I'm writing the book, and I'm sure I've got an interview with Jeff Tweedy in a magazine somewhere where he talks about this film, you know, and I've got, I have, you know, so. It's there's something about being able to go to the thing, like a library. I guess it's it's that thing, isn't it? You go to the place and you engage with the text in a, in a purest in a purer form than sitting at home on your phone. I don't know. There's yeah, yeah. Oh no, and, and like yeah, that's the other thing. Like anything to get you away from doom scrolling is 
you know, and honestly, it's like that conscious thing of I'm doom scrolling, stop it, go and do something. Yeah. Go and do something Absolutely. else. And uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. But brilliant episode. Thanks so much for uh, putting those three together, Neil. It was really interesting to listen to. And I hope, you know, our listeners will, you know, give give one or more of these magazines a try. You know what I mean? It's always nice when people sort of actually gravitate. So, oh, do you know what? I'm going I'm, to, I'll buy an, a, a, an edition of that cool. just to see what it was like. So hopefully that that, that will happen. Yep, the links will be in the show notes. And I recommend, there's something for all tastes there, I think, as well. So um, yeah, fill your boots. Indeed, indeed. So I think what we're going to do now is we're going to invite everyone over to our after party as it were which is the bonus episode where we're going to give a little london film festival preview or maybe talk a little bit more about about that and and what we just said there sort of personalities wise because that was a really interesting direction which we hadn't planned but it was really nice um so yeah the next couple of episodes are going to be london film festival episodes we've got um a couple of our previous guests who are kind of going to come on and help us out savina petkova and james matra hopefully we'll we'll come back and uh, talk about some of the films that they've seen. Um, Neil, lovely to speak to you, as always. You too, yeah. Thanks, man. Looking forward to joining you in the cocktail room. Indeed. So so come over and join us. Please, you know, continue to, to um, if you like the podcast, share it on social media. Contact us. Anything that you want to say to us about, about the show or any or films generally, then we're, we'd be happy to uh, discuss them on, on the show. You know, you can reach us on the usual channels at Cinematologists on, on Twitter and Cinematologists at gmail.com on email. But... That's it for this episode. This has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening.